Oh my gosh, it is another episode of Salt Lime mm, Storytime. Mm, it's mm, me, mm, Jess Nani, mm. here with my close personal confidant, Allison Hillman. I almost said your What's middle up? name is Allison Renee Hillman. <laughs> e- yeah, that's a hard pass. How long have you is, known me? Jesus. That is not your middle name. I no, don't know No, it's why. not even close. There's not even, no, there is an R in it, but it's at the end. Yeah. Well, your middle name is Marjorie. How did I get Marjorie? It's... <laughs> Wait, it's Marjorie, not Marjorie. <laughs> it's Margin. It's I can't believe it's not butter, actually. That's my middle <laughs> name. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> clearly, clearly we're doing so well. It mm-hmm. is Memorial Monday. The Sunday scaries set in about 12 hours ago. We're doing real, real well. But mm-hmm. Allison, how's your week been? It's been really good. I worked a lot with flowers and plants, and there was the most beautiful rainbow I have ever seen in my entire life outside my house the other day. Um, Well, last night. It was a triple, almost quadruple rainbow, and one of the spears of, like, one of the rainbows was inverted, so it was almost crossing one of the other ones. Like, it was the coolest thing. We can post a picture of it on our Instagram Mm -hmm. if we want to, like, with this week's episode, but it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life and also we're getting rain here which is just oh I just feel like better about the world when we get rain in Utah I feel Mm -hmm. like mother nature's healing (laughs) so I know I know it's been like I was a little bit sad that I didn't get to swim this weekend but it's been it's still been really lovely that picture of that rainbow that you sent me was incredible i was at a family dinner with brendan's family and i showed everybody i was like i need you all to see this <laughs> oh really yeah it would yeah. do oh my god it was absolutely the coolest thing i and you know um other people saw that too you know like our neighbors and they were like holy shit like we've never seen a rainbow like this ever so it was very it was very magical and you know with the rain and everything so it's been a good relaxing week but that's Mm -hmm. me how about you um I've had a pretty decent week a lot of a lot of family my brother and Brendan's little sister graduated from high school this week so that's been really fun I spent a lot of time with family and and had the opportunity to celebrate this generation of new graduates so I went to two graduations in one day and let me tell you the kids are not okay. <laughs> no, I believe that. Holy shit. Like they're going to be they're going to be all right long term, but right now they're they're not okay. <laughs> the the messaging was hopeful but bleak. bleak there was a yeah. lot of there was a lot of acknowledgement of like the trauma that they've gone through over the last 3 years and Jeez. It was just a bit like very exciting, but also a little bit morose. Of it, it felt a little bit like, oh, thank God we're done. <laughs> In a different way yeah. than it felt when we graduated. Yeah, and not to make this even sadder, but for graduation to happen so soon after that horrible shooting at mm-hmm. the elementary school, I can't imagine being in a school setting with that many people i seriously don't even know if i would have wanted to go to my own graduation that's so scary Mm -hmm. well and the thing that was so frustrating is that and i get it's these kids celebration and i i understand wanting to keep it as light and upbeat as possible but 
at neither ceremony were the Texas children mentioned in any capacity. And it was the day after it happened. It was so much more humbling to be in this atmosphere, knowing what had just happened and what continues to happen, like what has happened Mm -hmm. to hundreds upon hundreds of other children and their families over the course of the last 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. And that their parents and their loved ones will never get to experience this like this at all uh i think it goes without saying alice and i are pro gun control and oh god yes we are absolutely this country needs a complete turnaround of how i yeah it functions with gun control i genuinely don't want to live here anymore it (laughs) is absurd and unsafe and even just some of the trauma we experienced mm-hmm. you know from all the shootings going on when we were in high school and even in college like that we had a false alarm that went off when we were in college there was an active shooter on campus and mm-hmm. that was one of the scariest days of my entire life and even though thankfully nothing happened I remember that day so vividly my teacher literally just told us all to go home because she was too traumatized to teach like I mm-hmm. It, I can't, like, the basic human right should be for kids to be able to get an education. And right now, Republicans, or not saying it's just them, right now, a lot of people are most caught up with making sure babies can be born, but we can't even make sure and guarantee that they can go to school. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. oh. It, it's so frustrating. Take take extra care of yourselves over the next. I I mean always be taking care of yourselves, but uh, I've been talking about grief a lot lately with my therapist and allowing yourself to feel the emotions of grief, whether that be sadness, anger, all of that good jazz. Like let yourself have the space for that. Like it's okay to be angry about these situations and not necessarily find the positive light immediately because that anger is really important for finding any sort of solace or change or anything like that so i that's a really good point i just really appreciate that she said that because i i think you're right anger is a tool that can be used when used correctly to process really negative emotions and understand them and it's good for i don't know it's good for the human brain to face it but there's stages of grief for a reason and if you don't allow yourself to feel some of the ones that might make you feel a little bit more uncomfortable like you're just going to be stuck in this cycle of denial and shame until you allow yourself to feel all the feelings of the cycle anyway Mm -hmm. all this to say i had an okay week the country did not have an okay week and we're going to we're going to have a really really upbeat podcast today and I'm really excited about our topic but we would feel amiss if we didn't take a minute to acknowledge some of the loss yeah. that this country has faced this month. But yeah, and stay strong everybody. Yeah, absolutely. No. Well, now Jess, we get to talk about one of the most upbeat and positive and most incredible things and personally one of my favorite things on this planet, which is women. So we are going to be talking about some incredible women today, and I, as always, am so excited about this topic. I cannot wait to tell you about it, and I cannot wait to hear yours, and you will be going first today. 
Yes. So tell me everything. All right. So, Allison, as you know, I really wanted to do Paris Hilton for this, but (laughs) I felt like that might be a little bit too lighthearted, you know. I wasn't sure if that fit the vibe. So then I made Brendan text you to find out what you were doing. And he was like, it would be really funny, but I don't know. (laughs) So then I was thinking, what would Allison enjoy listening to? And I was thinking about some topics that you really love that are podcast appropriate. And I was like, who better to do that's a badass woman in history than Amelia Earhart? (laughs) 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 Who? Yes! I knew very little about, but I was like, this will be really cool. Planes, women. Mm, mm. We're combining Allison's two favorite things. And I learned so, <laughs> so much. True. I learned so much. She died in a plane crash. Like, really? <laughs> I mean, come at me, girl. Girl. Well, I should say, supposedly, right. she died in a plane crash. So, Amelia Earhart, tell me, Allison, before I really dive into this, what do you know about our queen of the sky? Honestly, I'm a big fan. I did a report on her in college, but that was a very long time ago. So I don't remember as much, but I think it's just absolutely fascinating. And I think she's a complete badass. And I can't wait to hear this updated, justified version of this story. So please tell me. All right. Okay, let's get into it. Uh, My sources are... AmeliaEarhart.com, the biography section, a blog about fun facts about Amelia Earhart called BGUPress.com slash Amelia Earhart, Wikipedia, as always, the History Channel's page on Amelia Earhart, and the Britannica biography of Amelia Earhart, as well as a Google image source of me saying hey google what was amelia Earhart's flight pattern www.google.com <laughs> are we ready i uh, was born ready for this story i can't wait all right <clears throat> miss amelia Earhart was born on july 24th 1897 in atchison kansas to parents samuel edwin stanton Earhart and amelia amy Earhart. She was part of a prominent family in her community, and in fact, her grandfather was a real capitalist school who was a federal judge and a bank president. So we won't fault her for that, but Grandpa Grandpa Amelia Earhart's grandfather, not not necessarily the greatest guy in the 1920s, but... It's okay. My my uncle is friends with Mitt Romney, so, Uh you know. (laughs) All right. Uh really quickly anyway (laughs) she displayed an affinity for adventure in planes from an early age her mother amy did not adhere to normal conventions when it came to raising her daughters she allowed them independence the use of bloomers or pants as their daily clothes instead of dresses and she and her sister gracie were allowed to roam and play in the dirt with no consequences unlike the other little girls in their town love that I know, right? Like, Amy, Earhart, let's go. Yes, I know. So, like, she really just let them have the experience that their male cohorts were having. 
and they had a great time. So this environment fostered a great sense of wonder and self-reliance in Amelia. At the age of seven, she worked with her uncle to build a ramp roller coaster that replicated one she'd seen at a fair earlier that year. It ultimately, because she was seven, (laughs) did not work (laughs) and crashed on her first time using it. But she recalled telling her little sister, oh, Pidge, it's just like flying. Also, sidebar. Her little sister's nickname was Pidge, which I think is really funny, but also how That's sweet really is that? That's oh, so Pidge, cute. it's just like flying. So, so cute. So, in 1907, after her father got a new job, the family moved to Des Moines, Iowa. The next year, when Amelia was 10, she got to see her very first airplane. To say she was unimpressed was an understatement. She recalled the instance saying her younger self thought it was just and I quote, a thing of rusty wire and wood and not at all interesting, end quote. Her father tried to get her to take a ride on the biplane, but she refused and simply asked to go back to the merry-go-round. Iconic behavior, frankly. Mm -hmm. She and her sister were both mainly educated at home under the care of their grandmother and a governess. While the Earharts were not necessarily poor, thanks to her established grandparents, Amelia's father was a very bad businessman and an alcoholic. In 1914, when Earhart was almost 17, her father was forced to retire from the railroad house he worked for, and he was never able to find a true recovery in his alcoholism. In the same year, her beloved grandmother died suddenly and left a trust to her mother that her father could not access. The family was forced to auction off their house and belongings to survive, and Amelia marked this heartbreaking incident as the end of her childhood. Oh, man. I know. After some more- How old was she? Sorry, how old was she? 17. 17 roughly like going on 17 it doesn't say when this kind this really happened so it's sometime in between 16 and 17 anyway after some more tumultuous decision making on her father's part as do all great feminists bad decision making by their fathers Amy, Earhart's mother, took the girls to Chicago to live with some family friends. While there, Amelia fought hard to be placed in a high school with a comprehensive science program she could participate in. Unfortunately, the school she chose did not have what she expected from a science program, and she hated her time finishing high school. Who amongst us didn't didn't Mm. love high school? When she graduated in 1916, her yearbook quote read, and I quote, A.E. dash the girl in brown who walks alone, end quote. Oh, shit. Oh, my God. If only she had a Tumblr or something, man, she would have been edgy. Listen. Listen. Okay, this next part, you're going to be like, she really didn't need a Tumblr. Amelia was running a Tumblr analog before Tumblr was even a twinkling in somebody's eyes in the freaking early aughts. So after graduation, Earhart had high hopes for herself. Historians have recorded that Amelia kept a scrapbook full of newspaper clippings about successful women in male-dominated fields. She was determined to be such a woman if she ever got the chance. Literally scrapbooking other women's accomplishments Hmm. as inspiration. Little gay. Little gay, but also analog Tumblr. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Absolutely incredible i'm obsessed with her i know right she as i was reading this i was like she is a whole mood and a vibe Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
1917, as World War I began to take full swing, Amelia took courses from the Red Cross to become a military nurse's aide. She began working with the Voluntary Aid Detachment at Spadina Military Hospital and helped serve injured military servicemen, including pilots. Hearing their tales of war and flying sparked her interest in aviation, and thus, a passion began. In 1918, Earhart visited an air fair, which is exactly what it sounds like. People in planes doing a fair of some sort. <laughs> a space F-A-I-R. Yes. <laughs> they were all having affairs with each other. Oh, my they're God. All, it was they're all having affairs in the, in the sky. Wives were crying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. Nice. Hot. That sounds hot. At the fair, a pilot spotted her and her friend standing in a field alone and dive-bombed them to show off. Earhart recalled this moment, saying, I am sure he said to himself, watch me make them scamper. Earhart stood her ground as the aircraft came close. She continued on, saying, I did not understand it at the time, but I believe that little red airplane said something to me as it swished by. End quote. I love how she talks about airplanes as if they're lovers. It's incredible. I know. This the airplane was probably like, save me from this man. Yeah, basically. <laughs> just screamed, just get him out of me, please. Uh, incredible. So after this enlightening experience, Earhart became a woman possessed. She attended as many airfares or flight displays as she could in the coming months. On December 28th, 1920, Earhart and her father attended an aerial meet at Daughtry Field in Long Beach, California. She asked her father, Edwin, to ask about passenger flights and flying lessons. She was booked for a passenger flight the next day at Emory Rogers Field. Um, The cost was $10 for a 10-minute flight with Frank Hawks, who is a famed air racer from the time, and he gave her a ride that would forever change her life. She was quoted saying, by the time I had got two or 300 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. I love a woman who knows exactly what she wants. Oh my god, right? I'm in love with her. I am. Okay. Also, self-made. Get ready for this. So, shortly after this experience, Amelia hired Netta Snook for $500 for 12 hours of flight instruction. She worked several jobs, including photography and truck driving, to save up an additional $1,000 to continue her flight education. Earhart had her first lesson on January 3rd, 1921 at Kinnear Field on the west side of Long Beach Boulevard, now the city that's referred to as Southgate. Her teacher was um, Anita Snook, a pioneer female aviator who used a crash-salvaged plane that she had restored for training. Earhart cut her hair to match the short style of other female aviators, and after her first successful landing, she purchased a leather flying jacket but was teased because it looked so brand new. Naturally, like the true gay icon she is, she slept in it and distressed it with oil to make her look older and more experienced in the field. That's my girl. Mm. Obsessed. Also, I love that she picked... A woman aviator to teach her makes me so no that so makes thrilled. me so happy it's such a male-dominated field exactly love these women so about two years after she started learning to fly Earhart broke her very first flight record by flying at 14,000 feet the highest any woman had ever flown to date this would be the first of many of her flight achievements that she would go on to claim and just for context your average commercial plane flies at 35,000 feet in the air but like 
when you think about the plane technology we have now and what they were doing in 1922, mm-hmm. 14,000 feet in the air. Crazy. Also, to be able to comfortably breathe, 10,000 feet is it. That's why you jump out when you skydive, you jump out of 10,000 feet. That's why when commercial aircrafts lose pressure they go down to ten thousand feet because they don't need the pressure right like people can survive at ten thousand feet comfortably that's why i don't go above it but she she was like as you say fuck it we ball fuck it we ball (laughs) so around the time that Earhart broke this record her family god bless her shitty dad's heart began to have more financial crises Her mother, who had sole control over her inheritance, invested money into a gypsum mine, which I don't know what that is, but it's a mine of some sort, and lost big, like many other investors in the late 1920s. Amelia was forced to sell both of her planes in exchange for a small two-seater called the Yellow Peril. After this purchase, she and her mother took a flight tour of the U.S. as her mother recovered from a messy divorce with her ex-husband, Edwin. The two ended up in Boston, where Earhart worked odd jobs, including as a sales lady for Kinnear Aircrafts and as a columnist in a local newspaper, a true influencer of her time. She started to become a local celebrity as more young girls looked to her as an inspiration for pursuing their dreams beyond marriage. So... Oh my god. In 1927, a man flew across the Atlantic solo for the very first time. And because this was badass women in history, I'm not including any of these men's names. If you'd like yes, to know, queen. I only include one. I don't even I skipped her husband. Her husband's not even in this. Just FYI. But I mean she's gay, so that makes sense. He had to ask her six times to marry him. she's gay (laughs) she's gay okay (laughs) anyway so in 1927 a man flew across the atlantic solo for the very first time a fellow female aviation enthusiast amy guest expressed interest in becoming the first woman to complete the journey as well but decided against it after further research proved that she probably wasn't capable instead she proposed sponsorship for quote another girl with the right image end quote enter stage right Amelia Earhart. So, on June 17th, 1928, the aircraft Friendship departed from Newfoundland and landed in Wales 20 hours and 40 minutes later with Earhart on board. She did not pilot the trip because she was not yet capable of doing transatlantic flight, but instead was, quote, of her, this is her saying of her journey to herself, I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. Earhart went on to say, maybe someday I'll try it alone, end quote. When she returned to America, Earhart and her fellow crewmates were greeted at the White House by President Calvin Coolidge. Earhart became known as, quote, queen of the air, end quote, by the press. Earhart capitalized on this fame by taking an extensive tour of the U.S. to lecture at universities. And like any good influencer, she also began to sponsor, be a sponsorship face for famous brands, including Lucky Strike cigarettes. Listen, I'm not I'm not a smoker. Lucky Strikes is such a sexy brand to be an influencer for. Like, that is so fun for her. (laughs) James Charles could never. James Charles could never. Crumble cookies move out the way. (laughs) (laughs) Bitches, sit down. Homegirl's flying over with a cigarette in her mouth right now. Absolutely. She used some of the sponsorship money to help fund new expeditions, including Commander Richard Byrd's imminent South Pole Expedition. So very cool that she was a funder of other 
exploration moments. Do you know how old she is at this point? I'm just trying to like. This is in. So she was born in the 1898. So she's 31. She was born in 1897. She was born 100 years before you. Doesn't matter. Age is just a number. Um, Anyway, but what were you saying? What year was it that she did that? 1928? In 1928 was the first time she flew across the Atlantic. So So she's 20. Wait, we're doing this math wrong. I thought that she was almost 27. We'll be 30. No, you're right. Oh, thank God. Oh, my God. You scared me. I'm so sorry. I can't do math. So. Well, apparently how old will you be in in 2028 that's how old she was yeah and how many things how many things will i have done by the time i get there i'm sure none of the things she's done bless her heart yeah well but at least i got to kiss a girl and she didn't mm -hmm. i'm hopefully she did i hope her sake wasn't looking i'm sure she did she's hot she's hot shit yeah exactly anyway we digress so Mm, let's see here so this marketing that she was doing established Earhart as a mystic and in the public psyche rather than simply endorsing the products that she was asked to endorse Earhart actively became involved in the promotions especially in women's fashion for a number of years she had sewn her own clothes but the active living lines that were sold in 50 stores such as Macy's and metropolitan areas were an expression of a new Earhart image her concept of simple, natural lines matched with wrinkle-proof, washable materials was the embodiment of sleek, purpose- purposeful, but feminine. So, uh, Amelia Earhart, activewear since the early 19, 1900s, 19th century. You're, you're <laughs> well, it'd be the 20th century. 20th century. That's never made sense to me. It makes no, no it hasn't. It doesn't make any no sense. sense. It's it's stupidest thing. But Lululemon. Could never. Lululemon could never. They are standing on the shoulders of Amelia Earhart. She has so many shoes to fill. It's un- it's unbelievable. I know. Cigarettes, shoes, planes. Yes. We're not even to the, like, the cool things that she's done yet. This is what's crazy. <sighs> so she became an associate editor at the famous women's magazine Cosmopolitan and used her newfound fame to promote women in aviation, as well as the commercial investment and use of airplanes. She worked with other prominent aviation personalities to set up the first ever public aviation shuttle between New York City and Washington, D.C. A true businesswoman, unlike her father, she became the <laughs> vice president of a Northeast <laughs> Airlines system as a woman before 1930. Damn. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. President? That's insane. I know. I know. So... Despite all her business success, she was still dead set on being a force in the competitive flying scene. In late 1928, she became the first woman to complete a solo trip back and forth across North America. These trips proved her skill amongst fellow pilots as a professional. General Lee Wade flew with Earhart in 1929 and said, quote, she was a born flyer with a delicate touch on the stick, end quote. (laughs) It's not dirty. (laughs) No wonder her husband asked her six times. Oh my god. Oh. With her settlement into the aviation community, she began working with and creating women-led groups to promote the rights of female aviators. She instituted their own log of aviation feats separate from men and became the president of the 99, an all-woman aviation group in 1930. 
1932, Earhart finally set out to complete her goal from 1928, to fly across the Atlantic Ocean solo. On May 20th, 1932, Amelia set out from Newfoundland in hopes of landing in Paris like the first man to ever complete the journey. After 14 hours in the air, Earhart landed in a field in Northern Ireland. A farmham asked her, have you flown far? And she responded glibly, saying, only from America. Obsessed with her energy. Now, she flipped her short hair over her shoulder and I'm yeah, sure turned around and walked away from him. Basically, applied chapstick and walked away. Hot shit. While she didn't make it to Paris, her flight was still a feat. For her success in crossing the Atlantic in such turbulent weather, Earhart was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross from Congress, the Cross of Knight of the Legion of Honor from the French government, and the Gold Medal of the National Geographic Society from President Herbert Hoover. So this is now the second president she's met. She also became friends with none other than gay icon herself, Eleanor Roosevelt, who wanted to learn to fly, but was too busy doing other shit to actually do that. And then they had a steamy affair in the plane while Earhart was flying. She was referred to as her close confidant. Yeah, I know what that means. I've had several close confidants in my time. There was nothing heterosexual about it. Okay, that's all I gotta say. New relationship status, close confidant. <laughs> it's complicated, married, single, close confidant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Between 1930 and 1935, Earhart had set seven women's speed and distance aviation records in a variety of aircraft, including the Kinnear Airster, Lockhead Vega, and Pitcairn Autogiro. Don't know what any of those planes are. Wow, Jess. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say, um, which, which out of all of those, which one's your favorite? Lockhead Vega, probably. Vega, yeah, probably. Yeah, that's a pretty cool. Plane. By 1935, Earhart dreamed of a new goal. She was quoted saying she wanted a new quote prize, one flight which I most wanted to attempt, a circumnavigation of the globe as near its waistline as could be. In 1937. With financing from Purdue University, where Earhart was working at the time, she began to plan the longest flight anyone had ever embarked on, a full-globe circumnavigation as close to the equator as possible. The trip was estimated to be 29,000 miles long and required a specially built aircraft under Earhart's specifications. And for context, people had circumnavigated the globe before, but they'd done it in a way that made the trip shorter so they would, like do like the top like a little bit more closer to the t- poles stuff like that sure. she wanted to do it along the equator. the equator the biggest part wow yes so she called the specially made plane the flying laboratory because it had some so many non-traditional additions to accommodate her fuel and storage needs unfortunately her goal was hit with roadblocks from the start her initial navigator harry manning who was a skilled oceanic and flight navigator was fired after landing them in the wrong state on a test drive. Fred Nonan, who was a celestial navigator, meaning he was trained to use the stars to navigate, was hired instead. The crew made two attempts at this insane journey. On March 17, 1937, Earhart and her crew flew the first leg from Oakland, California to Honolulu, Hawaii. On this leg, the plane experienced lubrication issues and they were forced to stay in Honolulu for servicing. You've experienced lubrication issues and have had to stay in Honolulu for servicing, haven't you, Allison? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. 
While the plane was being repaired, Earhart secured more funding and prepped for another attempt. This time, flying west to east, the second attempt began with an unpublicized flight from Oakland to Miami, Florida, and after arriving there, Earhart publicly announced her plans to circumnavigate the globe. Earhart and Nonan departed Miami on June 1st, 1937, and after numerous stops in South America, Africa, the Indian subcontinent, and Southeast Asia, arrived at Leh, New Guinea, on June 29th, 1937. At this stage, about 22,000 miles of the journey had been completed. The final 7,000 miles of the journey would be flown over the Pacific Ocean on the way to Howard Island. Now, it's going to get a little bit nitty gritty here for a minute. So please hold on. Fasten your seatbelts. Fasten your seatbelts and please return your trays to the upright position. You got it. On July 2nd, 1937, at 10 a.m. in the morning, Earhart and Nonan took off from Leigh Airfield in a heavily loaded uh, Electra. That's the real name of the plane is the Electra. Their intended destination was Howland Island, a flat sliver of land 6,500 feet long and 1,600 feet wide and only 10 feet above sea level. So this thing was tiny. It was about 2,556 miles away. The expected flying time was about 20 hours, so accounting for the two-hour time difference between Ley and Howland and crossing of the international date line, the aircraft was expected to arrive in Howland the morning of the next day, July 2nd. The aircraft departed Ley with about 1,100 gallons of gasoline. Around 3 p.m. lay time, Earhart reported her altitude as 10,000 feet, but that they would reduce altitude due to thick clouds. Around 5 p.m., Earhart reported her altitude as 7,000 feet and speed as 150 knots. Their last known position report was near Nukamanu Islands, about 800 miles into the flight. The two were never heard from again, nor was any evidence of the aircraft found after this location. A rescue attempt immediately commenced and became the most extensive air and sea search in naval history at the time. On July 19th, after spending $4 million in scouring uh, 250,000 square miles of ocean, the United States government reluctantly called off the operation. In 1938, a lighthouse was constructed on Howland Island in her memory. So, how did she go missing? Allison, you have probably seen the Unsolved Mysteries episode about this. Knowing you. Was it the one on... Was that on Netflix? No, it was not in the new season. It's from 1990. No, actually I haven't. But I know some of the newer theories about potential evidence. Okay, well if you would like to provide any feedback, I only referenced three. So there are a few theories about what happened to the two flight crew. All historians agree that radio error was likely the primary cause of the lost airplane. No one is positive of the radio used on her plane, but likely but likely all candidates were would have had frequency issues in the area she was in. So the biggest issue was that her transcripts were getting to Howland Island, but theirs weren't getting back to her. So they could hear her, she couldn't hear them. So the first theory, which is the most likely in my opinion, is the crash and sink theory. This theory proposes that due to radio failure, Earhart and Nonan began, became lost when they couldn't communicate with a ship stationed at Howard Island set to guide them into landing. Their flight had plenty of fuel to get them to their destination with some left so with extra to make sure like headwinds, 
getting lost, anything like that was accounted for. But at 7.42 a.m., the day they were supposed to land, Earhart is reported to have said, we must be on you but cannot see you. The gas is running low. Have been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet, end quote. At 8.43 a.m. that same day, Earhart reported again, saying we are on the line 157.337. We will repeat this message. We will repeat this on 6210 kilocycles. Wait, end quote. Between Earhart's low-on-fuel message at 7.42 a.m. and her last confirmed message at 8.43, her signal strength remained consistent, indicating that she never left the immediate Howland area as she ran out of fuel. Unfortunately, the ground radio signals were not reaching her plane to guide her incorrectly. The U.S. Coast Guard made this determination by tracking her signal strength as she approached the island, noting signal levels from her reports of 200 and 100 miles out. These reports were roughly 30 minutes apart, providing vital ground speed clues. Based on this and the lack of additional signals from Earhart, the Coast Guard first responders initiated the search, concluded that she ran out of fuel somewhere very close to and north of Howland. Historical estimates from deep sea recovery crews state that under this theory, the craft is likely 18,000 feet below the surface of the ocean and that Earhart and Nonan must have died drowning after the crash if they were not killed by the crash. The same man who found the Titanic, Robert Ballard, has launched expeditions to hunt the craft down, but has never had success. Another theory <laughs> boasts that the two were captured after a crash landing on a Japanese-controlled island. In the Unsolved Mystery episodes from 1990 about Earhart, a Japanese woman recalls watching both pilots being executed as American spies. There are other reports of two pilots buried in Tinian, which is five miles southwest of Saipan. Earhart's family believed this theory full-heartedly. However, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this theory is likely implausible, mostly that the islands that they supposed that she crashed on were about 800 miles away from where she was supposed to be. So it doesn't make a ton of sense, like geographically speaking, why she would have gone mm. over there if she couldn't find this small island. Finally, my favorite theory is that Amelia survived the ordeal, changed her name, and moved to New Jersey. To live happily with a woman. <laughs> We'd like to think that. The woman who was accused of being Earhart sued the authors of the claims for $1.5 million. Get your bag, sis. <laughs> so, anyway, that is the incredible life and potential death of Amelia Earhart. She's definitely dead Feminist, at this point. author, mm. aeroplane operator leader trailblazer trailblazer etc etc wow that one of the theories that i heard was that recently as in after 2015 i think they did they a search found, in 2019 was it okay they they found on a very very small island off of new guinea where sorry where was it that they were supposed to yeah. land new um, Guinea. So New Guinea is where they left from, but I know what theory you're talking about. And it was by and, New Guinea. It was that she turned around. And they well, – either they crashed in the water and swam to this tiny, tiny island. But what they found on this island, I think, were human remains mm -hmm. and the sole of a boot that mm -hmm. was a pilot's boot. Yes. And they think that's her remains. However, they've done analyze – so I was reading this today – and they've analyzed the skeletal remains and they're both male. God damn it. Never mind. Oh. But, okay, good to know because I didn't know that part. Would have been really wow. cool. Would have been so cool. But I think one of these days we will find her. 
because mm-hmm. it, it'll definitely be by accident. Oh, Somebody yeah. will find it and we will have answers. But either way, it's sad that we lost her, but also like she went out in a cool and mysterious way. And that's pretty bitchin'. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and her legacy, frankly, and, and I hate to put it this way, but when people like her have these kind of insane unsolved mystery disappearances or death or whatever, it gives her a little bit more notoriety and, Mm -hmm. and her influence on the commercial side of aviation. I think I didn't know about until I was reading through this, like her investment and her promotion of the safety of commercial air travel was really, really vital. She was the vice mm-hmm. president of one of the first commercial airlines in the United States. Like, yeah, so cool. Anyway, badass, big fan, died in a plane crash, kind of subtly gay. Allison, what more mm-hmm. could you have wanted from a story for me? <laughs> Absolutely nothing more. You have surpassed my expectations. Thank you. This was, this was great. And I, it just reinforces my adoration for this woman she's seriously like was like one of my idols growing up so thank you so much for covering her you did great wow jess thank you for covering one of my crushes from history you did a great job i appreciate it and it makes me love her even more and it's actually really funny and it was hard for me not to say anything when you told me who you were doing because my topic for today is the night witches what who were the all female bombing brigade yes for world war ii yes okay i know about these guys they're Mm -hmm. so cool oh my gosh they are so fucking cool and for this i'm gonna need to have you help me pick a girlfriend out of amelia Earhart and all the women i talk about in this because it's really hard for me to choose okay and I, I really okay. trust your judgment. So I'm going to start with my sources. One was an article from rightmuseum.org. One was an article from aircrewremember.com, which was like the info about all the pilots. The third was history.com article written by Bryn Holland. And I got probably most of my information from that one. And then one of my favorites was a YouTube video called Night Witches of World War II by Wars of the world and that has a lot of good firsthand quotes in it so jess allison the year is 1942 the war world war ii the place russia the dictator joseph fucking stalin i almost said smith i almost said joseph smith joseph stalin (laughs) the enemies the nazis and the heroes, might you ask? A bunch of badass women who demanded the right to fight alongside the men of their country. All present feelings of Russia today put aside. This is an incredible story about women going against all odds and doing incredible things that I just have to share with you. But first, as always, I'm going to give you a bit of background, okay? So... Here for it. In June 1941, Adolf Hitler had launched Operation Barbarossa, which was a massive invasion of the Soviet Union. By autumn, the Germans were pressing in on Moscow. Leningrad was under siege and the Red Army was really struggling. So, in other words, the Soviets were getting super desperate for help. So, enter Major Marina Raskova. Jess, 
She has literally been described. Every article, every video, she is Russia's equivalent of Amelia Earhart. Oh? Mm-hmm. My And God. it's actually funny. I meant to say this at the beginning. You did something that you knew I'd enjoy listening to. And I almost did the Olsen twins because I knew you'd enjoy listening to that. <laughs> I also almost did Kim K. So that would have been a whole different uh-huh. episode. But, but it's so funny because I was like, I, I've been knowing about these women forever. I have to do them. But I almost did the Olsen twins for you. So I'm glad you did. But I chose myself. Thank you. Yeah, me too. This is a great story. So anyway, she's Russia's equivalent of Amelia Earhart. Her name's Major Mar- uh, Marina Reskova. She's famous not only because she was the first female navigator in the Soviet Air Force, but also for her many long distance flying records. So, flying was actually really popular in the 1930s, and thousands of women belonged to flying clubs, including Reskova. But when Germany invaded Russia in 1941, Russian women weren't allowed to be pilots in the Soviet Air Force, but they were allowed to assist them. So, at this time, Reskova became the first female navigator for the Air Force, so she basically sat behind the pilot and told him what to do, which we love a queen that tells men what to do, okay? So... There were many women who wanted to be gunners and pilots flying on their own, not just doing the dirty work, right? Many had lost brothers, fathers, husbands, boyfriends. Everybody with a dick was supposed to go out and fight. It was a whole thing. And they had lost a lot of loved ones. And they had also seen their homes and villages completely ravaged by the Nazis, so they were pissed. Raskova received a slew of letters from women admiring her for what she was doing as a navigator But they said they wanted to join the war effort as more than just helpers. So she saw this as an opportunity and took it upon herself to make sure that their voices were heard. So Reskova took these letters and marched up to Joseph Stalin and was like, what the fuck is up? I'm about to fix all of your fucking problems, right? And at this point, I like to imagine that she just like slaps the letters onto the desk in front of him and just like juts her hip out all suave, like, you know, just flips her hair over her shoulder. that's the only way to do it right and so she showed him all the letters and petitioned for him to let her form an all-female fighting squadron because okay let's face it you are a dumbass if you don't let 50 percent of the population fight against the nazis like it's just a numbers game come on it's not 50 percent of the fucking population come on and so Luckily, Joseph Stalin admired her and agreed to this, which is probably one of the only cool and progressive things he ever did. Can I ask a gross side question? Yes. Is Stalin the one who has a dick in, like, pickling juice in a museum somewhere? Or is that somebody else? I don't know. Is that Rasputin? That's Rasputin. 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 I'm pretty sure that's Rasputin. Please cut this out. (laughs) I I don't know if I want to. (laughs) But come on, man. Yeah, I know. But um, he was a bad guy, but he was like cool for like a split second right here. And he was like, honestly, I'm down. And on October 8th, 1941, Stalin gave orders to deploy three all female Air Force units and one mixed gender unit. So they were the 586th Fighter Aviation Regiment, the 587th Bomber Aviation Regiment, and the 588th Night Bomber Aviation Regiment. So they were all slightly different, but they were all badass female regiments. 
The women Absolutely. would not only fly missions and drop bombs, they would return fire, making the Soviet Union the first nation to officially allow women to engage in combat, which is huge. Of these three regiments, we will be speaking of the Night Bomber Regiment specifically. So, Raskova quickly started to fill out her teams. From more than 2,000 applications, she selected around 1,000 women and split them amongst each of the three units. The Night Bomber Regiment was made up of 261 women. Um, most of them were students ranging in age from 17 to 26. So, Jess, want to go apply? I'm down. Absolutely not. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I figured that'd be your answer. Those selected uh- began training... <laughs> I'll support you in anything you want to do, but I will not be piloting a plane. I know that about you. Bless your heart. Uh, I, I would definitely pilot a plane, but I have no interest in going to war. No, thank you. So these women are brave, very brave. So those selected began training at the Angle Schools of Aviation, and they underwent what was referred to as a highly compressed education Because, Jess, they were expected to learn in a few months what it took most soldiers several years to train to do. And they were just, like, fucking down for it. Each recruit had to train and perform as not just pilots, but navigators, maintenance, and ground crew. So, unfortunately, Roscova also had to train them on how to tolerate sexual harassment and just harassment in general that they would inevitably receive from their male counterparts. Most men were upset that women were included in the front lines of combat and they had made it and they made it very, very, very clear that they felt that way. Which we hate. Why are men? I that has something that's something I've been asking myself since I was born. Unnecessary. Why are men? <laughs> I shit on men so much in this podcast, I'm sorry. I love like three of you. My brother, Johnny, and probably somebody else i I need to think about that for a minute so a brendan brendan's great thank you there's this very entertaining part in mary poppins that i think about every time this conversation comes up about like being irritated that men exist and it's when the mom of the two kids who's like the suffragette is like in her song though we adore men individually as a group we think they're rather stupid Oh, here, here. Outlines it perfectly. Here, here. And I think that the rest of this story will further prove her point. Because, my God, were these women amazing. And also, the teamwork alone that they were able to do because they didn't question each other. Anyway, so, Maria Smur... And I just want to say, these are Russian names. I don't even come close to speaking Russian, so I'm doing my best. But, and I will I will also be referring to most of them with their first names because they're a lot easier to say than their last names. But if their last names are pronounceable, I will refer to them with their last names. That's all. Okay, great. So, Maria Smirnova was one of the first women who answered the call to fight. She was born to a family of peasants in 1920, and when she was a teenager, she started training to become a teacher. Throughout the 1930s, she taught at a primary school next to an airbase. The sight and sounds of the aircrafts, like taking off and landing, captivated her attention, so she decided to apply to join. And in 1937, she was accepted into the flying program there and soon became a flight instructor. So... After women got clearance to fight in the war, Stalin appointed her as deputy commander in the 588th Night 
regiment because of her experience, which was a huge honor. When asked for her opinions on the role of women in combat, she said, quote, was the war a woman's business? Of course not. But we didn't think about that. We defended our fair motherland, our people, whom the fascists had trampled. Girl! Like, mm. we love women that just do us right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Love to see it. Fuck the Nazis. That's how they felt, too. Yeah, seriously. So, on top of the already unfair conditions these women had to train in, the military also wasn't prepared to accommodate female pilots. And honestly, they didn't really care to do that either. So they were given the army's equivalents of hand-me-downs. All they had was men's clothing, which were oversized, including the boots, and the women had to tear up their bedding to stuff into the boots to make them fit. So they were like a bunch of like 10-year-olds putting on their dad's clothing and running around like thinking it was fun, but they were like actually going to war. They weren't just like running through the front yard, you know? Yeah. They're having their like Mulan moment over here. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But they had to like make that shit work. None of it fucking fit. And guess what? Just their equipment was not much better. In fact, I might say it's worse. The military provided them with outdated biplanes, which you would fly because you... (laughs) (laughs) because you're bye (laughs) (laughs) happy pride god good one allison so the military provided them with outdated biplanes which were 1920s crop dusters that had been used as training vehicles and jess can tell you all about crop dusting (laughs) can i or can you (laughs) we've both done it so, all crop dusting jokes aside, I will be saying that a few more times throughout this story. Um, and they're not farting, they're in planes. I will I will just put that out there now. So, these lightweight, two-seater, open cockpit planes were never meant for combat. And, Jess, I'd like to ask you, can you guess what they're made out of? Wood? Yes, and canvas. They're basically made out of matches. Plywood and canvas pulled over the plywood. They could not be more flammable. They literally couldn't be more flammable. (laughs) And so the aircraft offered virtually no protection from the elements or enemy fire. And flying at night, pilots endured freezing temperatures, wind, and frostbite. And get this, in the harsh Soviet winters, the planes could get so cold that just touching them would rip off bare skin. so that like literally sounds miserable so world war ii okay yeah they have real planes at this point yes the men are flying the real planes fuck you yeah the men are flying the real planes give the women the shitty ones that nobody else is using if they want to help Uh uh-huh yeah there are a few times where i got big sad but actually as miserable as this sounds, there's more. Ready? There's always more. There always is, especially in my stories. I can never just let you be comfortable. It's not the point of this. Not only that, they couldn't use any of the high-tech equipment their male counterpilots were using and were forced to use more rudimentary tools such as rulers, stopwatches, flashlights, pencils, maps, and compasses. Okay, their planes were so outdated that using up-to-date equipment meant the planes would be far too heavy once the bombs were added under each wing. Also, parachutes, parachutes were too heavy. Parachutes. They, some of them would carry parachutes, but most of them wouldn't. That's how stingy they had to be. 
What is what? I don't know. I wish My I had heavens. The yeah. So the planes were old and rickety as fuck. There was no radar on them, no navigation tools, no safety whatsoever. They weren't wearing clothes or boots that fit. And also, the planes flew slower than any other plane in the sky. But, Jess, this actually gave them a humongous advantage. They could maneuver a lot faster than the Nazi planes, and their slow speeds made them really difficult to hit. So, like, literally, these biplanes flew at 90 miles an hour, which is slower than the stall speed of the Nazi planes. So they literally could not get down to that speed if they tried. They would just crash and die if they did. Oh, my gosh. Also, because these small planes didn't have much technology, they were invisible to any and all ground radar. So they were basically ghosts to the Nazis, impossible to track, and really difficult to hit. But... If they did find themselves under enemy fire, the pilots had to duck by... (laughs) You're going to love this. The pilots had to duck by sending their planes into nosedives because most didn't carry defensive ammunition. That was the only way they could get away. If they did happen to be hit by tracer bullets, which carried a pyrotechnic charge, their wooden planes would burst into flames almost immediately because, again, they're basically just made out of matches with canvas and wood. And... So regardless of all the pros of flying these older planes, there were still some pretty extreme cons. So these women did not have a lot to work with, but they made it work. And we love it. Men under these conditions would have refused to fight. I just want to say that. Yeah, absolutely. They would not have. They would have been like, we deserve better. We deserve more. And we love them for this. So... The biplanes could only carry two bombs at a time, one under each wing. In order to make meaningful dents in the German front lines, the regiment sent out 42-person crews at night. Each would execute up to 18 missions every night, flying back to rearm between runs. The weight of the bombs forced them to fly really low, making them much easier targets, hence the night-only missions. Also, the night-only missions stood to weaken the Nazis. Russia really wanted to ensure Germany could not get the chance to rest and repair equipment, something that often took place at night. So, with the women's growing skill and unnerving accuracy, the Germans were too scared to sleep and couldn't prepare for upcoming battles. Just queens of the sky. The psychological warfare here is incredible. I know. God, love to see it. Okay. So, Maria Smirnova described her experience flying on the very first night. Quote, On the first mission, we lost our commander of the squadron, and I was appointed to take her place. I had ten pilots and ten navigators in my squadron. We flew through the front lines, breaking through three defense lines fortified with German artillery to bomb targets such as fascist aerodromes, railway stations and tracks, field headquarters, and bridges. We flew in a line three minutes apart, and the enemy was well aware of our timing. They had to be on alert all night long. They did not get a wink of sleep. End quote. Oh my god. So cool. Okay. So the planes, this is kind of how they did all of it, um, their formations and whatnot. So all the planes each had a pilot in the front and the navigator in the back. Can you kind of picture the planes that I'm talking about? Yeah, I know exactly what you're referencing. Okay. Like they're directly behind each other, but in like different little. Okay. Uh 
So the planes had a pilot up front and a navigator in the back, traveled in packs. The first planes would go in as bait, attracting German spotlights, which provided much-needed illumination. These planes, which, again, rarely had ammunition to defend themselves, would release a flare to light up the target on the ground. The planes that followed, Jess, would turn off their engines and glide silently in the darkness to the bombing area. All that could be heard was a signature whooshing sound as the planes passed overhead, dropping their bombs, and the Nazis likened it to the sound of a witch's broom. They started calling them the Nachtexen, like the Nachtexen, the Nachtexen, I don't know how to say it. They started calling them the Nachtexen, meaning night witches. This was meant to be a derogatory name to shame the women, but instead they fucking loved it and they immediately embraced it as their own name. It reminds me so much of when Trump was like nasty women or whatever and all the women were like I'm a nasty woman and it was like on bumper stickers everywhere like yes that's what this reminded me of they were like fucking night witches that is like the coolest name you could have given us and so they were all for it and started calling themselves the night witches and that's how they got the Uh, name I love it so just a fun random fact that I adored is that there were 12 commandments the night witches followed the first was, be proud you are a woman. Oh. I know. Killing Nazis was their job, but in their downtime, they still did needlework, patchwork, they decorated their planes, and they danced. And they even put the pencils they used for navigation into double duty as eyeliner to give the Nazis a little extra razzle-dazzle, uh. which I love. Like, That's they went incredible. in as women. Yes, there's no shame around their gender. I absolutely love that. That the very first thing was be proud you are a woman. I I love them. I love this story so much. So incredible. Okay. So there was another flight that Maria recounted. One night while she was leading a two-planed attack, they were spotted in the low light by a Nazi pilot in one of the premier German fighter planes. Using her slow speed to to her advantage, she managed to dodge his attacks, but sadly, the plane behind her was not so lucky. The pilot of that plane, Darcia Nussel, was killed instantly, and her body slumped forward onto the control, sending the plane into a wild nosedive. Her navigator behind her, Irina Kasharina, wrestled the duplicated controls in her cockpit to try to right the plane, but Nussel's body kept pushing the stick forward. Irina reached out and grabbed the pilot by the collar, pulling her off the controls, and with one hand on the controls and the other holding the pilot's body upright, she pulled out of the nosedive and managed to nurse the plane back to base and land safely. Oh my god. Oh, they're so cool. They're all so... I'm just obsessed with all of these. These Okay. The amount of, like, logical and quick thinking is so impressive. Mm-hmm. The lack of sleep. Remember how Remember how I told you that, like, they were trying to deprive the Nazis of sleep, which is part of the reasons for the night mission? Yeah. That was also starting to really affect not just the Germans, but also them. And the women would often return from their missions filled with adrenaline and or mourning the loss of a friend, making it extremely difficult to sleep during the day. Uh, Maria Smirnova herself suffered from such severe anxiety that she was sent away to treatment, but like a fucking badass, and I don't recommend doing this, but she did, and I appreciate it, she ran away from treatment and hitchhiked back to the regiment. 
she could not relax knowing that they were out there night after night without her and she just had to be there fighting alongside them. So she spent the rest of the war and the rest of her life really trying to cope and hide her anxiety and her PTSD. I guess hot war World War II girl shit is running away from uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, but mm-hmm. hot girl 2022 shit is staying in cognitive <laughs> behavioral therapy. Yes. Thank you, Jess. That is absolutely right. She probably should not have done so, but she didn't. We love her for doing it. And also, frankly, nineteen late nineteen thirties, early nineteen forties. How mm. how good was how the good? therapy? Yeah. She was she just gonna be lobotomized? Like literally. Yeah. So yeah, she probably wasn't about to get any like. How do you feel about that? Let's talk about it. PTSD is a real thing. They didn't even fucking know PTSD was a thing. Anyway, at least I don't think. I think PTSD became more of an knowledgeable thing after the vietnam war well they called it something else they called it like soldier flu or something like that like they huh. they've had different shell shocked that was shell something that they yeah. called it in world war one and it just like slowly got different names until so, yeah. it ended up with complex ptsd yeah so that's a great point she probably was not receiving very good treatment she probably felt that her place was better and it was probably less torturous to be flying in the planes in the front lines than it was to be sitting and, like, just knowing that her friends were out there without her. So I do respect her a lot for that. But, again, we love queens that take care of their mental health today. We love it. So <laughs> so while the night witches definitely suffered some losses, their accuracy was getting so good that they started going on night missions to bomb railways, bridges, and German artillery positions. Hot. Uh-huh. And just remember, they were relying on skill and knowledge alone. They didn't have technology at all in the slightest to lock on the target. And as they dropped their bombs, they were really just really, really, really fucking good at what they did. And they had the ability to work in teams flawlessly. Like with the planes in front dropping flares, the planes in back turning off the engines and gliding and dropping bombs. Like they were on it. And Ugh, that's so cool. Oh, I know. It's so cool. <sighs> I love this story. I'm sorry. I'm so passionate about this story. They became so feared and so hated by the Nazis that any German soldier that shot down one of their planes would automatically be awarded the highest honor, which was the Iron Cross Medal. So they were literally saying, any one of you that can get one of those planes down is going to get the highest award out there. That's how big of an impact (laughs) these women were making on this war. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So over time, they started to gain attention and respect from all over the Soviet Union. Little girls idolized them. The men began respecting them. And they appeared in propaganda films and movies for the cause. The Germans themselves had their own theories as to who these women were, and these are so fucking funny. Some said they must be convicted criminals sentenced to death fighting for their freedom. Others said these women were the product of Soviet sleep experiments designed to keep pilots awake and alert for 24 hours. The Nazis simply could not fathom the fact that they were getting their asses absolutely pummeled by a bunch of ordinary women, teachers, students, housewives, and farm girls. They're like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be some creepy experiment. It's gotta be <laughs> witchcraft. Soviet women are just built different. <laughs> I'm like getting so excited. I'm like wearing myself out. On 
The night of July 31st, 1943, the regiment suffered one of its biggest losses. This mission was also led by Maria, who had scoped out the area prior to the attack. But as they approached their target, she could sense something was kind of off. As usual, the searchlights were sweeping the skies in search of their planes, but instead of the usual hail of anti-aircraft gunfire, there was nothing. Silence. That's when she realized what was going on. The guns weren't firing because German fighter pilots were flying all around the skies above them, waiting. Using the searchlights to illuminate the women's planes, the Nazi pilots would attack. Maria later said that nothing like that had ever happened before. They had not developed tactics to counter the attacks of fighter planes. Because she had considerable experience in combat, she was able to escape the searchlights, which meant the waiting Nazi pilots couldn't see them, but that meant that the younger and more inexperienced flight crews behind her didn't really understand that concept. And tragically, four of the biplanes following her were shot down and the bullets set the planes on fire. Quote, our planes were so vulnerable, they burned like sheets of paper. End quote. Tragically, one of those that died that night was Irina Kasharina, the woman who landed the plane after the pilot was shot and killed in their mission uh, that I just earlier spoke of. Oh, no. I know. Okay, and I know that's really sad, but I'm going to make it up to you with an even wilder ride that is more positive and uplifting than anything you're ever going to fucking hear, okay? Okay, I'm ready. Yeah, I know you are, because this is some great shit. (sighs) And again, I don't speak Russian, so I'm going to do my best with these last names, but it's not going to be... It's not going to be good. So, there was one night when two pilots... Reja Sernachevskaya and Tamara Pamyatnikha. Oh my god. <laughs> so, two pilots, Reja and Tamara, were on the patrol when they suddenly saw 42 enemy aircraft surrounding them. Reja, who, by the way, Jess, was four months pregnant. Naturally, naturally. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Recounts, quote, At first, we thought they must be birds. There were so many of them. Then we realized they were German dive bombers. They were approaching the railroad station, and the station was full of trains. End quote. And so they understood the severity of the situation, like they were so close to bombing the civilian railway. And so they radioed into their commander for instructions, and they received the order to attack. And... Remember, they are each in 1920 crop dusters built of wood and canvas, and they are going against 42 state-of-the-art German bombers, okay? But these sons of bitches, they, well, these daughters of bitches, they dove through the formation twice, each shooting down a bomber on each pass, and they scattered the formation, forcing the bombers to drop their bombs in the fields and return without reaching their target. And here's the thing. Their slow, shitty planes are probably the reason that they were able to pull this off. The Nazis, and this image cracks me up, the Nazis literally could not slow down enough to get them. They were basically just flying circles around these women who were just kicking their asses. But here's the thing. Soon Tamara ran out of ammunition, so she was like, fuck the Nazis, and decided to ram into a bomber to take out just one more. 
She got so close that she could see the fear in the pilot's eyes when suddenly one of her wings was shot off. Raja saw Tamara hit. Quote, I was filled with despair when I saw her plane dropping away, spinning and on fire. End quote. But just by some fucking miracle, Tamara had a parachute on board that day. Her plane was in a nosedive, spinning uncontrollably, and she was fighting to get her seatbelt off so she could jump. She was fighting and fighting and finally it released, and the force of the spin threw her out of the cockpit and she was able to deploy her parachute. When she did, she was only 500 feet off the ground, which for our American friends is a little over one and a half football fields, <laughs> okay? <laughs> she landed in a field outside of a Russian village, fine. And the locals rushed out to help her. And let me tell you, they were fucking blown away that she was a woman. They could not believe it. So she ran to a telegraph station to report back to base. And after she did, she looked over and saw Raja, who had landed safely, walking across the field through the snow. And they ran and hugged each other. Oh my god. Uh huh. Together, they each shot down two Nazi planes, so a total of four, and they chased the other thirty-eight away. Just oh. in their shitty planes, these two women prevented the Germans' attack on the train station. Like, you know those videos of like Chihuahuas chasing away black bears or grizzlies? Like, that's exactly what I picture: is two little like Yorkie terriers chasing away a pack of like forty-three mountain lions. Like, that's exactly what this is. I don't even have words. That's incredible. It's so cool. It's insane. It's It doesn't make sense, but they fucking did it. And Tamara was awarded the Order of the Red Banner for her heroism, and King George VI from the UK gave her a gold watch. Raja also achieved the distinction of being probably the only person ever to fly in combat while pregnant. And they both lived. That is baffling. Until old age. I can't imagine they could ever fly again sheerly because of the weight of their balls. I, they would I don't drop think would out be, of the sky. I don't think that it would be aircraft safe. Like, unless their balls were sitting in the, the cockpit behind them. It doesn't make sense. But, oh my god, just incredible. So, pulling in from that, I'm going to start to kind of close up this story, okay? So... You remember Major Marina Riskova, the one who pitched the idea of the women pilots to Stalin? Vividly. Right now, she's number one for your girlfriend on my list. Oh, is it? Well, unfortunately, she passes away on January 4th. They're all dead, but she passes away on January 4th, 1943. She was flying with the mixed-gender dive bomber units when she was killed in combat, and but here's the thing she was given the first state funeral of world war ii like the very first state funeral of that war and was commemorated with a ship transferred from the united states given her name (gasps) oh i know so in all the night witches would lose 32 of their 261 members but Here's the thing. Considering the danger of the missions they would fly, this number is actually pretty low, especially when you include the fact that some of those deaths were due to an outbreak of tuberculosis in their camp. So, while tragic, the accomplishments of this crew far outweigh the losses. One flight commander, Irina Sabrova, flew a staggering 1,008 missions, and for that was awarded the title Hero of the Soviet Union, the highest accolade for service to the state. She was one of 23 women in that regiment, including Maria Smirnova, who would receive that award. So, incredible. Incredible. 
all in all, the Night Witches were almost always on the front lines. But here's the thing. The front lines would keep moving with the Germans as they retreated. And so they would have to keep finding new airfields and bases. And just like they were constantly on the move. This was not easy. They didn't always have like a solid base to return home to. It was always changing. And in all, they dropped over 23,000 tons of bombs on the Nazis and flew Fuck over yeah. 30,000 missions over the course of about four years. Total badasses. This includes chasing the retreating German army out of the Soviet Union, through Poland, and into Germany itself. Hell ah, yeah. I know. On May 4th, 1945, the Night Witches flew their final operations just 37 miles from Berlin, Germany. And three days later, Germany surrendered and the war was over. The Night Witches went from having to pester Joseph Stalin to fly to, get this, become the most decorated unit in the Soviet Air Force. We love to see it. And if you look up pictures of them, you will see they each have like 20 badges on. It's insane. Like they are so decorated. These women are crazy. They're so cool. <sighs> they're so beautiful. I and they're know. They're so decorated. They're so decorated. <gasps> Fun. I know. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, once the war was over, there seemed to be a collective thought to ignore the success of the female aviators altogether. And their regiment was even declined permission to partake in the flyover as part of the victory parade. Can you guess the official reason for why they were denied? Periods? Their planes were too slow, but basically the same thing. Ugh. But here's the thing. They won so many battles because their planes were too slow. People would have waited. Damn it. Anyway. But the women themselves never forgot... Every year on May 2nd, the regiment would hold a reunion to remember those brave women who failed to return from their missions, and in more recent years, there have been a number of books, movies, and TV shows written about them. But I want to end this on a really heartwarming fact that I learned. One young night witch, Zhenya Rodneva, was the head astronomer of the Solar Department of Moscow prior to World War II. During the war, she used her knowledge of astronomy and became the head navigator for her regiment. She wrote in her journal that her time fighting in the war would probably be the best and most meaningful years of her life. She flew a total of 645 combat missions, but was unfortunately killed in battle. But in 1972, astronomers named an asteroid Red Nova, quote, in honor of the night witch and young astronomer who dreamed about the stars. Oh! <laughs> And that is the incredible and little-known story about the Night Witches of World War II. Thank you so much for that. That was so lovely, Allison. Oh, so, they're gosh. so cool. All of them. They're so cool. That is incredible. That is such a cool story. I know. Isn't it? Doesn't it just make you feel like hopeful and just like you, you can fucking do anything like these yes. were just ordinary people this these were people just like me and you just being fucking badasses and just killing nazis like god getting shit done cool i i love this episode this might be my favorite episode yet actually it's been really fun i've liked this episode a lot the james charles episode 
a grand time for me but like i also love that i mean i love the last episode too but i like this one particularly because we both did something that people are going to feel good about (laughs) whereas i might have made a few people terrified to fly if if they weren't before i i don't feel like i traumatize people as much on this one no i'm not traumatized so good i figured because i mean I, I kind of cheated because, again, these were about planes, but it wasn't about plane crashes. It was about the women flying tiny planes that you will never, ever fly in. So Absolutely not. Refuse. Over over my lifeless body. Yeah. Wow. So, anyway, anything else you want to add? <sighs> Women are amazing. We are so proud to be part of a feminine community who has ancestors like this and Although I will never fly around the world or do anything as cool as the Night Witches did, I'm still proud to be a girl. Me too. And so would you still conclude that homegirl that talked to Joseph Stalin is my number one choice here? You know, I also really like Maria. Mm, Very cool. mm -hmm. Very cool. Um, And then Raja. The one that jumped out on the parachute? Yes. Hot. Yeah. Tamara was the one who jumped out on the parachute and Raja was her pregnant friend. Okay, Tamara. Tamara. My apologies. Yeah, I, I think Tamara, I know she lived past the war, and while she is dead now, it doesn't count, and I feel like she might be my top choice as well. I will be leaving this podcast feeling better and brighter than I did before, and happier, yes. and I hope all of you do too, and I hope you guys join us next week for another three two one shots, and then the week after that, we will be doing... Villain origin stories? Villain origin stories, ladies and gentlemen, the stories that turned Jess and I into who we are today. Cannot wait. So, thank you guys for listening. Please follow us on social media at Salt Lime Storytime on Instagram and Facebook. Yes, Allison, Villain Origin Stories is going to be a delight. I have no clue what mine is going to be yet because there is like 80 of them, but we'll see. And if you have any stories about some badass women in your life or that you know of or ancestors or anything like that please dm us send a carrier pigeon mm. email us we'd send love amelia to Earhart. send amelia Earhart with the little smoke thingies out of the back of the plane that yes say, here's my story <laughs> that's a lot of yeah. that's a lot of pollution though so don't do that hmm. and we will see you next week for villain origin stories for actually Thank for you, Jess. Shots, but. Fuck. For three, two, one shots. And then villain or just... <laughs> it's my first day. All right. Good night. Goodbye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. <laughs>